Welcome to the Faculty Podcast, brought to you by Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of a 50-plus year endeavor to prepare pastors and other church leaders in a biblically and confessionally faithful way for the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I'm the president and associate professor of Old Testament here at RTS Washington, and I am joined by Dr. Peter Lee, associate professor of Old Testament and dean of students at RTS. How are you doing, Peter? Hi, Scott. Good seeing you. Great to see you. Also joined by Dr. Tommy Keene, Associate Professor of New Testament and Academic Dean at RTS. Hey, Tommy. Glad to be here. And I'm joined by Dr. Gray Sutanto, our Assistant Professor of Systematic Theology and our man in Jakarta, Indonesia. Hey, Gray, how are you doing? Hey, Scott. Great. Great to be here. It's great to have you. And I'm joined by our instructor in New Testament and senior pastor at New City Presbyterian Church here in the Northern Virginia area, Paul Jean. Hey, Paul. Scott, thanks for having me. Now, we have a a special guest today, a particularly special guest. We've had a few in the past, but we're thrilled to have Dr. Ligon Duncan joining us this morning. Hey, Ligon. It's really good to be with you, Scott. Thanks for having me on. It's great to have you. Uh, Ligon is, for those of you who don't know, and I suspect that is a vanishing few, Ligon is the Chancellor and CEO of Reformed Theological Seminary, and he is also the John E. Richards Professor of Systematic and Historical Theology here at RTS, but Ligon's really been teaching and involved at RTS for over 30 years. I think I saw the other day, Ligon, is this your 31st year? It sure is. I've just started into my 31st year at RTS. That's incredible. It's great. It's been great to have you, um, at least during my time here. I've been around RTS circles for about 20 years, and Ligon's always been involved in the uh, in just influencing and leadership here at RTS, but really took over about eight years ago as chancellor and has been leading us uh, through a time of really incredible um, growth for the seminary, but also through this difficult time that everyone's experiencing over the last six months. And Ligon, this is a podcast that was actually originally set up to serve our students, and it still is serving primarily students at RTS, um, that we have a, a broader uh, audience nowadays. But I would love it if you would just be able to tell us a little bit about how RTS is doing as an institution. I think people have heard a lot about RTS Washington here. I'd love to hear about how RTS is doing as an institution, both in light of just the pandemic, quarantines, lockdowns, everything that's going on right now. Can you give us a little bit of, a, of the bird's eye view of the, how the institution is holding up? Well, a lot of the folks listening to you in the Metro DC area will be very familiar with the ministry of RTS Washington DC. You may not know that we're in seven states in uh, eight cities, in uh, two foreign uh, nations doing ministry on a regular basis. We have students in 80 countries, uh, graduates in 80 countries serving the Lord on every inhabited continent. Uh, And so, uh, you know, the sun never sets on RTS is is our motto. Uh, And and that means across the institution uh, in a situation like we're in right now with COVID-19 and all the other things going on in North American culture right now, uh, it's a little bit different everywhere. So in New York City, uh, you know, they're, they're still very much in coping with lockdown mode. Uh, in, uh, in Jackson, Mississippi, we, you know, we've gradually been having a few students back on campus. So 
the only course in our RTS system right now where we have a few students in class along with students online is Miles Manpelt's Old Testament uh, Hebrew uh, course in Jackson right now. We're sort of experimenting with that this summer because we're going to try that uh, in the fall with some classes. What's it like to have some students in class and some students online and, and are we able to treat both of them equally and give them a really good experience? And we're sort of testing that this summer to see if we can do a good job with that this fall uh, with several courses that the provost's office has, um, has designated that we're gonna try that with. Uh, because the neat thing is, uh, as hard as this transition has been in COVID-19, uh, many people in the RTS system know this, but maybe, maybe those of you who are listening who are not part of RTS wouldn't know this, but RTS was the very first seminary in North America approved by our accreditors to uh, experiment with distance learning over 30 years ago. And uh, that means nobody has more experience with this than RTS. And so COVID though it's been very disruptive and our students have been incredibly patient with us as we've tried to adapt to these disruptions, COVID has actually kind of played into our hands. It's played into our strengths at RTS because we are a distributed system. We're in multi-cities. We already have to use a lot of technology to communicate with one another. We already had a very robust distance learning program and RTS Global has been, I mean, it's the industry leader. It's the gold standard. When, uh, when new institutions wanna try and do distance learning, invariably our accreditors say, go look at what RTS is doing. They actually know how to do this and learn from them. And, and we're very happy to share that because we want everybody to have a better experience in theological education. But we've been trying to up our game, frankly, Scott, you know this, this is, this is an area where our distance learning guys are really committed to doing better and better. We have a culture of continuous improvement in this area. So um, in the midst of all this disruption, we've got the, uh, the highest summer uh, enrollment ever in the history of the institution, wow. uh, which is just counterintuitive. I, I wouldn't have thought that would happen because we're, we're mostly all remote live. Uh, this summer. Um, but we'll learn some things in that process, just like we learned at the end of uh, last academic year in the spring, having to finish uh, online, just like everybody else in uh, North America and, and lots of places around the world had to do. Uh, we'll learn a lot about this this summer and we'll get better. Uh, we're, we're really committed to our students having the best possible experience. And so far, our students have said they have loved uh, what they've gotten from their professors. For instance, Tommy King, with us on this call, has been helping other professors know how to use Microsoft Whiteboard in, in the class. So I've been kind of watching what Tommy has been doing to learn how to do that better uh, for my students. So we're all learning some tricks uh, and some, uh, some means and some methods that help in online learning uh, because we, we want it to be the best it possibly can be for our students. Now, the, all that having been said, we have said for many years at RTS, the more personal theological education is, the better. Uh, you know, there, there, nothing can replace you actually having a relationship with a professor and a professor knowing you 
and caring about you, knowing who your, you know, your spouse is, who your children are, what your life story is, where you're ministering and serving. Because when time comes for you to get recommendations and, uh, and, and launch into ministry, the more your professors know about you, your, pa your, your professors are not just professors, they're pastors. And uh, the, the better they can pastor you in that process, the better they can recommend you in that process, uh, the better they can equip you for that uh, ministry that you're, that you're going into. And so we want theological education to be as personal as it possibly can be, even if we use technology like we're using right now. And um, so that's another thing that we're committed to doing uh, at RTS is figure out, even in situations like this, where we can only relate to people in terms of, um, in terms of remote live, we want, we want it to be personal. And uh, that's one reason we're committed to residential theological education. So RTS is actually doing pretty well in all this. The Lord has been, give, has been good to us in terms of our finances. Uh, the Lord has been uh, good to us uh, in terms of our enrollment. And uh, our supporters have continued to pray for us and uh, stick with us through all of this disruption. There's a lot of economic disruption around our country and in our communities, and yet people have been continued to be very uh, generous to us. And so we're, um, we're just trusting in the Lord. We don't know what residential education is going to look like everywhere in the RTS system uh, in the fall. We know we won't be residential in New York City, but God willing, we will be residential kind of everywhere else, we hope. But things can change. You know, this thing is already, we're already seeing relapses and climbing incidence rates and things like that. We're going to be ready. We've got a plan A and a plan B and a plan C. And uh, we hope we can stay with plan A, which is residential. But if we have to go to plan B and plan C, we'll do the best we can to, uh, to adjust, adapt, and accept. So uh, all, you know, all things being equal, Scott, I, our team has really pulled together. You'll know because you were on all of these calls in, in March and April and May as the, as the presidents, as the executive directors, as the leadership team tried to figure out what to do to finish the term, what to do to plan for summer, what to do to plan for fall. The strengths of our leadership team really, you know, the cream rises to the, to the top. And boy, have we really experienced that together uh, in the last several months. We just got a great team of leaders and they've all had great ideas and input and everything that everybody has recommended has helped um, improve what we have offered to our students. And I'm, I'm very thankful for all of that. Having that online platform to fall back on was, has been huge. I mean, I know you talk to a lot of other seminary presidents and leadership and I've had some funny conversations and that people know that we emphasize residential scholarship here at RTS. And as we were all figuring out what to do with lockdown and, and I remember mentioning to people, well, we, we've got this net that is the online program that can catch the people who slip through. And a lot of people were kind of surprised that we had such an extensive online program because they knew how much we emphasized residential leadership. And I, I love to be in that strong position of emphasizing the personal face-to-face -face and yet having that that backdrop, that safety net to catch us in situations like this so that no one, no one's course of study needs to fall between the cracks. That's You're actually right. teaching one of those, those uh, residential 
remote residential courses right now, aren't you? That's exactly right. I'm doing Theology of the Westminster Standards, which interestingly is going to be our QEP, which is a, a special uh, course of uh, or emphasis that we'll have as an institution on making sure that we're weaving the Westminster Standards into uh, the fabric of the theological education that people are getting to prepare for pastoral ministry. I'm teaching the Theology of Westminster Standards course, remote residential. I've got students from five continents uh, in my class. I've got a student from South Africa, a student from Edinburgh, Scotland, a student from China, a student from Brazil, a student from Canada, uh, and then a bunch of folks from all over North America in that class. And it's just been a blast. Uh, and, you know, I wish I were together in the same room with them but we literally would not be able to get that collection of students in the same room. Uh, and so it's one of those things where this disruption has actually allowed for some things to happen that couldn't have happened if we were only operating residentially. And I am learning things. I'm learning things about how to make that class better, how to use this kind of platform uh, better. And uh, I think if you ask those students, they would say they have had a very high quality educational experience and they feel personally and pastorally attended to. I've tried to meet with them outside of class hours, have elongated uh, interaction with them after, uh, before and after class. Um, some of them I'm going to be able to meet in person. Some of them I already knew it already, it, it helps in our residential system if you know some students before you interact with them this way, right. uh, because then they, they know that you already know them and love them and care about them. And that means that even though in this situation, they might think, oh, I wish I were in the same room and we could go out to, to the lost dog uh, uh, in, uh, <laughs> in DC and grab a sandwich together or something like that. Uh, but they still know, hey, he knows me. You know, this isn't just a face on a screen. Absolutely. We're actually friends. And uh, we want to we find ways to do that for all of our students. I love the lost dog reference, really playing to the crowd there. So, <laughs> I've, I've loved it too. I've, you know, I got to teach one of these remote residential ones as well. And for me, it's a, it was a great touch point, not only to kind of like that international focus, but also just the bigger RTS, the, the one RTS. Like I have, I have some uh, Mississippi students yeah. in the class and that's been to hear, hearing their perspective and, uh, and, and their kinds of questions that, that are different from the Washington DC kinds of questions. It's interesting how you can kind of spot these sort of local issues and local questions it's been it's been very exciting and and helpful to me as a teacher um and students will linger after yeah. you know after hours on zoom and and have conversations it's been very encouraging i i agree tommy and it's you know this is something we've been seeing happening more and more the last couple of times i've taught residentially in dc i've had students from new york come down to dc i've had students from charlotte come up to dc i've had students from houston come up to dc i mean dc is a fun place to come to you know there's a there's a lot going on in dc and so it's a great place to go take a course and so we've started seeing rts students do that more and more we've had um, groups of students in a pack go over to atlanta from jackson to take sinclair ferguson for a course. Well, you know, of course, why not? Why wouldn't you want to do something like that? But this, the remote live has actually even enhanced their ability to do that. So, and I, I want every student 
at in every place at RTS to feel like all of us belong to that student. And I want them to be exposed to as much of uh, the rich um, experience and expertise of the totality of our faculty. I'm, I, I think we have the most amazing faculty uh, in the world. And I want all of my students to know as many of my faculty as they possibly can, because I want that faculty to be a resource to them for the rest of their life in ministry. So I love it that a student in Jackson can take you in DC or um, you know, I have my, uh, uh, my, my uh, son's uh, girlfriend is going to be in Grace Sutanto's systematic theology class. And I'm, I'm thrilled about that. She wouldn't be able to do that otherwise. In fact, she's being able to take RTS. She's getting ready to go off to graduate school in the fall uh, in Texas at Baylor. But uh, she, this, this gave her the opportunity to take graduate courses before her graduate courses started at Baylor. And so she's going to get to take ST1 with Grace Atanto. And I'm just, I'm thrilled about that. And that's happening all over the RTS system this summer. I think that's one reason why our registration is so high. That's excellent. It's been interesting to see how in light of this crisis that no one saw coming, we all had to scramble and in the scramble, we discovered these strengths that we maybe knew were there. They were latent, you know, they were kind of below the surface and it's, it's been exciting, particularly for the summer, how many people I know who are taking classes now by my colleagues on other campuses, but friends in Washington, DC who are like, Oh, I had, I had so-and-so, or I had this person, or I had that person. And they're getting to uh, know the larger RTS brand in one way, but also just yeah. the RTS family, you know, and getting to know who's, who's out there, who's speaking for us. And that's been an exciting aspect of this, uh, of this really difficult time. Now, let me transition a little bit, Ligon. We, we've been wanting to get you on the podcast for a while now. But last week, there were some events that took place down in Mississippi, really last weekend. And we just realized this is a timely moment. And we wanted to get you on to talk to you about what happened with the flag in Mississippi, the Mississippi state flag and, and your role in that. And just also give some context. There was a lot of discussion about this on social media and some people may be aware of what's happening down in Mississippi, yeah. but I'd love for you just to give us a little bit of background as to what's going on with the flag, the Mississippi state flag. And, and what was your role in that over the last yeah. week or so? Well, uh, to, to recap, last night at about five o'clock, the governor of Mississippi signed uh, into reality legislation that took down the 1894 uh, Mississippi state flag. And that flag uh, had emblazoned in its canton, that corner in the upper uh, left-hand uh, part of the flag, the Confederate battle flag of the Army of Northern Virginia. And that flag had been put up in 1894 really to symbolize that there was going to be an attempt to disenfranchise black people in the state of Mississippi from the full experience and enjoyment of their citizenship rights. The, um, what happened in a lot of states across the South after Reconstruction was over was uh, state legislatures started trying to find ways to uh, diminish the citizenship influence of black people. And uh, Mississippi actually you know, devised uh, tactics in its constitution to suppress black voting, 
and, uh, and a variety of citizenship rights. And that, that became a template that a lot of other states across the Southern United States uh, used for a long, long time. And those things didn't start unraveling until the 1960s in the wake of the Civil Rights Act. And then all of the things that started happening in our culture uh, sort of as a ripple effect beyond that. And those things are still going on today. We're still trying to unravel and deal with those things. And um, so the, 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 the fact of having the Confederate battle flag in the Mississippi state flag had been for our, uh, our African-American citizens, a, a real sign to them that they were second-class citizens. Uh, you know, I know you've, you've ministered in Turkey for many, many years, Scott, and uh, anybody who knows the history of the Ottoman Empire uh, from a Christian perspective, one of the things that uh, draw, our, our attention is immediately drawn to is the issue of dimitude and uh, the sort of second-class status of Christians under uh, Ottoman rule. And uh, well, you know what? We had that in the United States, but it was, it was black Christians, uh, especially in the South, that were, uh, that were under that kind of a dimitude. And so that has, that, the fact that that battle flag is in the state uh, banner has meant to a lot of citizens, and, and there may have been something like 47% of the state of Mississippi uh, African-American, according to the last uh, census, uh, you know, so almost half of your state feels like we're not, you know, we're not fully accepted. We're not, our humanity is not uh, acknowledged. Our equality is not uh, acknowledged. Our rights are suppressed. So that, that flag symbolized a lot of bad things. On the other hand, for a lot of Mississippians, that flag in, uh, was, a, was a picture of their honoring of their ancestors, the remembering of their history, uh, a shared heritage, uh, of the state, and um, and so it was a really, really divisive, contentious thing. And a number of years ago, um, I started working with some with Christians in the state who were actually Bible believing, um, conservative politically, but who felt like this needs to be changed. And uh, now, look, civil rights activists have been trying to change this for years. There have been. Uh, black legislators for 40 years have been making attempts to, to change this. But it finally happened this last week. And as I said last night, the governor signed it into law and the flag came down for the last time. And um, if, if I could summarize, it really started with the, with the tragedy and the injustice of George Floyd's uh, killing in Minneapolis uh, on May 25th. We had peaceful protests here in Jackson in early June, and then there were a ripple effect of, of things that happened that led to the flag coming down, which I'm happy to talk with you about. I'm just trying to give you a quick overview of what, what happened. But the bottom line is, a couple of weeks ago, these guys that I've been talking with for five years about what we could do to, to because we wanted to do this as Christians, along with the Bible-believing black Christians, Bible-believing white Christians in the state, working together uh, to do something that would unify our state, would bring us together, that would help us to get over some of these things that have dogged us, hounded us in our history, move us forward together. We, we thought we had some momentum back in 2015, Scott, but it, it petered out, it didn't go anywhere. But in God's providence, he used tragedy and injustice to unravel some tra tragedy and injustice 
in Mississippi. And that's, that's such a God thing. God does that all the time. You know, he'll use bad things for good things. And uh, we've seen that happen here in Mississippi. Your, your statement on the flag is available to anyone who wants to read it at ligandunkin.com. And I'd encourage everyone who has the opportunity to go over there and check that out. But in the course of your statement, you, you really highlight two theological themes, two Christian themes that influenced your thinking, one being the love of neighbor, and the second being the acknowledgement that every person is created in God's image. And I want to highlight that for a moment because up here at the Institute of Theology and Public Life, we're often talking about how do our theological commitments affect downstream, right, the way that we do life together, that we care for one another and that we are in some ways political or public individuals. And how does our theology influence that? So can you unpack that a little bit, just the idea of loving neighbor yeah. and acknowledging image of godness, right? Yeah. And how that influenced your thinking here on the flag and just in general too, in terms of how you think about public theology. Yeah, great, uh, great questions. There's, there's sort of a concatenation of, uh, of issues there uh, in that question. Note in the statement that I wrote, you can tell that I am especially speaking to Christians in that statement. Mm -hmm. uh, and and I'm, I'm speaking to, to Christians uh, who would be Bible-believing Christians. They're animated by the, uh, an allegiance to the authority of Scripture. So I'm not, I'm not uh, appealing to you know, cultural leftists. I'm not uh, uh, appealing to people that are coming from a secular standpoint. I'm appealing to Christians because a large majority of Mississippians identify with Bible-believing Christianity. And that's exact. actually, that is why the Lieutenant Governor and the Speaker of the House uh, ask me and other Christian leaders from Bible-believing uh, communions to come and meet with them last week. They realized if you can't convince Bible-believing Christians in Mississippi of something, you got no chance politically. And so they, they asked the Pentecostals, they asked the, uh, the Southern Baptists and the Methodists and, uh, and others to come and meet with them, some of the leaders, uh, to see if they could provide encouragement to the legislators that were trying to do the right thing, but that were getting very significant pushback from their constituencies. And so when I wrote, I wrote very consciously trying to speak to people that are motivated by an allegiance to Christ, by an allegiance to the Bible, and trying to bring to bear that Christian commitment on their public life. Uh, so you're exactly right, Scott. It's, it's right down the road of, of, of what you do in the Institute there at RTS DC. And I wanted to remind people that as we, as we conduct our lives as believers in the public square, uh, we actually have a higher bar than simply justice to operate on. You know, there's been a lot of justice talk in our culture, and appropriately so, in the last six weeks since the George Floyd thing. But justice is about making sure that people get what they deserve and making sure that you don't deprive them of what they deserve. Jesus actually calls G uh, to Christians to a higher public ethic than that. We are told not simply that we're to show justice and not deny justice 
to our neighbors, we're told that we're supposed to love our neighbors. And that means that we actually are to foster their well-being. In fact, the very idea of a commonwealth in America, that we are to uh, promote the general welfare, stems from an explicitly Christian ethic that you don't know. Enlightenment rationalism did not invent that idea. That idea comes explicitly out of Protestant Christianity, uh, in particular in the Western world since the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century. And so that's a profoundly Christian commitment. But by the way, pick up a book like Tom Holland's Dominion, and he'll show you how so many of these ideas that secular liberals today think that they invented actually come from Christianity. Well, this is one of them. Jesus says, here's how you relate to your neighbor. Don't just ensure that they're, they're treated justly, love them. In other words, care about their well-being. And so I wanted uh, Mississippi Christians to think about, okay, if that's, if that's what Jesus wants us to do, how would we go about loving our neighbors well? How would we care about their well-being? If they look at that flag and that flag says, I'm a second-class citizen. Uh, I don't have the rights that other people have here. Uh, people don't want me here. They want to kill me. They hate me. What, what's our responsibility as believers? And, um, and, and then I ask people to think about what it means that all human beings are created in the image of God. The, the, the imago Dei, that is that we are all created in the image of God. Red and yellow, black and white, we're all created in the image of God. What ramification does that have to do for, uh, or, or what does that ramification have for our life together in the commonwealth, in the public square, that we treat people, by the way, not just merely uh, with equality, but with dignity. You know, that's, that, it's, Christians have so much more to say than Black Lives Matter, for instance. We can say Black lives are in the image of God because all of us are created in the image of God. And so we've got, a, we've got more in our holster to speak into this moment in our culture than any secularists have. And we're just sort of over on the side of the, the, the road with our thumbs in our mouths. And I just, you know, I wanted us to bring to bear some Christian thinking uh, on this. And then I tried to call people to self-denial because one of the ways that Jesus says that you love your neighbor is that sometimes that means you deny yourself. And uh, I, I just wanted Mississippi Christians to think about that. One, to view that flag from somebody else's perspective instead of just their own. And then two, to think as Christians in terms of loving neighbor and, uh, and, and honoring the image of God in all other people, all of our neighbors, all of our fellow citizens, and then being ready to deny ourselves, even if something's very special and meaningful to us, if that thing is a stumbling block for our brothers and sisters in Christ and for our fellow citizens, do we really want to retain that? And I, I had a number of people, Scott, say that they, that, that, was, that changed their mind uh, on, on and legislators, uh, and wow. uh, private citizens. And um, so that was my goal, just to speak as a Christian to Christians to get them to think Christianly about this issue in the public square. Yeah, in the same statement, you, you moved from those two points to talk about the power of symbol. And, and symbol has been such an important part of uniting Christians and, and of the Christian traditions, so much so that, uh, you know, our ordinary means of grace, our word and symbol, 
uh, and sign, and that those two things together tell us who we are as Christians. I, I, you you kind of call us to, uh, I'll, I'll just quote you, um, to, to make sure that our public symbols emphatically acknowledge the humanity and equality of all of our citizens yeah. and inspire them to feel a part of and love our state, not fear and distrust it. Yeah. Can you comment a little more about how how symbols can do that and how Christians in particular can be a part of that process of reclaiming and uh, the, the unity of the faith, the unity of the people, the equality of all persons around around symbol? Yeah, that's really good. Uh, it, 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 I'll, I'll quote one of our black legislators who spoke on Saturday uh, at the state house when this was being debated. And uh, he, he said to the, uh, uh, to the white legislators, he said, uh, you know, when you have come into this state house day after day over the course of your service and looked at that flag, he said, my guess is you have not thought about that flag at all. You know, you may notice that that Mississippi state flag is up there, but you, you just don't think about it very much. He said, on the other hand, every day that I have come in here, when I've seen that that battle flag up on our state flag, it has said to me, uh, you're a second class citizen. You don't belong here. We don't want you here. And, uh, and then he said to the, le to the legislators um, across the aisle, thank you so much for, for, for being willing to take that flag down. You don't know what that means to me. And he said, this is very powerful. He said, I feel like for the first time in my life, that my white friends have listened to me and understand from my perspective what it's like to look at that. And boy, whew, that was huge to me. And I've heard that echoed many times in the last days in, uh, in, in our legislature. And what, what he was saying was there was a symbol up there that didn't bring us together, didn't, you know, didn't recognize all of who we are as Mississippi, but it separated us, it divided us, and it said to a, a large group of us, you're really not part of us, you really don't belong here, uh, you're not good enough. And to have a public symbol of who we are that indicates to almost half the population that you don't share in the same dignity and equality that the rest of us uh, experience or, 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 or have, or the humanity that we have, that's a, that's a terrible symbol to send, to send to people. It's also, by the way, a really disrespectful symbol to send. You think, think for over a hundred and something years in the halls of, of Congress in, in Washington, DC, that flag has hung a symbol of a nation that no longer exists and hadn't existed at least from 1865. And from the standpoint of the official, uh, uh, uh history of the United States never existed. You've got it hanging in the halls of, of Congress in Washington, DC, a, a battle flag that was used to fight against the United States of America. In, and to have it replaced by something, there are all sorts of suggestions on, on what, the, what it'll be replaced by. You know, maybe, the, maybe a magnolia will em, uh, emblazon uh, the, the flag. And, and the magnolia flower is a beloved flower by everybody in the state. Uh, of, of Mississippi, uh, or maybe by the state uh, uh, crest or shield. 
which has actually the motto of the United States of America on it, which again is a uniting kind of symbol. It's saying, hey, we're Americans. We're not saying that we're Confederates fighting against America. We're Americans here. And all of us can say, in God we trust, which is the national uh, motto. I don't know what it'll say, but the goal will be to have a state symbol that everybody in the state can say, yeah, I belong here. This is my state. That's my flag. My own state and government acknowledge my humanity, my dignity, and my equality, and they want me to participate in this great experiment that is this American Democratic Republic and, uh, and in, this, in this state, which is one of the states of that republic. So that I, I do think all of us need to think about the symbols and the, and the messages that they send. So just, just like the Lord's Supper sends the message from God to believers, I want you at my table, you're my children. Come to my table, you're my children. And just like baptism sends the message, you are united with Jesus Christ. Um, so also the public symbols that we use ought to send messages of what is ours as citizens together uh, in our nation. And uh, they ought to be things that, uh, that, that cause us to um, appreciate and enjoy the commonalities that we have in our, her in our heritage as, as citizens. And I think we'll get one of those. I, I think that, that'll be what's on the ballot in, the, in November for Mississippians to vote on. And I kind of like the fact, I mean, the legislature had the right to just go ahead and, and, and um, change the flag. That in, in Mississippi, there's no provision in the Constitution for a public referendum changing Mississippi code. That has to be done by the legislature in Mississippi. So they could have just done it themselves. I kind of like the fact that they've, they've let the people vote on it because I think that in and of itself will help all the people of the state feel like, hey, I've had a say in this. And, uh, you know, and, and this is going to be my symbol together as we go forward. So those are a few thoughts on symbols, Tom. And you also just give us an update on your efforts to get the Clemson tiger paw on the ballot. <laughs> I'm afraid my SEC friends in, uh, in Mississippi would have grave objections to that. <laughs> okay. Okay. Go ahead, Peter. You, Peter, you had a, a serious question. That, well, that could be a more uh, divisive, uh, harder battle in many <laughs> ways. Right. As, as, uh, as I'm growing increasingly familiar with the uh, spirit of the South in these areas, uh, Dr. Duncan, I have to say your letter was just so uh, was so ministering to my soul and hmm. and what that means to a lot of people I know, to our students and uh, to our community up here in D.C. as well as I'm sure to the many people in the state of Mississippi and so many other places. I was so proud to say uh, that I knew this man or I know this man mm -hmm. and, and, uh, and can call him, you know, my boss, my Uber boss, as they say <laughs> in this area. And so thank you for taking that uh, and for making such a great stand. Thank you. Um, in addition to uh, some of the scriptural references that uh, Scott mentioned in terms of your call for us to be consistent in our practices as treating people as uh, image bearers of God, of, of loving neighbor, I was struck by your uh, use of uh, our Jesus's call to take up our cross daily. As uh, I was reading an article of how many Southerners embraced the, uh, the flag, not necessarily as a symbol uh, to, of slavery, but because of the rich, deep history and the benefits of, of the South and 
and all of the positive things that it that the history its ancestry has to offer i was wondering uh, if you could speak to that what what what, what did this mean personally uh, yeah. and what does it mean for southern christians to to take this chance uh, to identify with a new symbol as you described so well which means to a certain degree uh, for uh, giving up uh, yeah. a part of their history that is good and and meaningful yeah yeah, Peter, you know, the, the psychology of the American South and the, and the Civil War is an amazing thing. And I, you know, I, I don't say that at a distance. I was born in South Carolina in 1960, you know, before we had even gone through the civil rights uh, movement in full. Um, uh, and, and, you know, I was sort of reared on the lost cause. And I think, you know, most of the United States, I think that the first experience of losing a war that, uh, that Americans ever had collectively was Vietnam. Uh, but Southerners long before that knew what it was to lose a war. And that was a, a it was a culturally and generationally traumatic experience from which Honestly, it's taken well over a century for the South to begin to come to grips with because, you know, Southerners had been sold by their political leaders on the idea that we were, this was the cause of God that we were fighting for. And especially after the war, Southerners attempted to disassociate slavery from the reason that the war was fought. And so loyalty to that flag and to the symbols of the Confederacy got deeply woven in, in, in Southern culture to your connection to your family, your, you know, your, your, your heritage, you know, you, everybody in the South knew their uh, ancestors that had fought in the war. Interestingly, when I became the pastor of First Presbyterian Church, one of the first funerals that I did in 1996 was for the daughter of a Confederate veteran. Now, you know, start doing that math in your, in your mind. That's, as you say, that can't be possible. Oh yeah, let me, let me tell you how it happened. Her father fought as a 16 year old in the Civil War, outlived his first wife, outlived his second wife, and in the 1890s married for a third time a much younger woman and had her. She was 99 years old, and I did her funeral in 1996. So it's amazing how close you are to the experiences of the of the American Civil War when you're in the South, even in the you know almost in the year 2000. And so culturally, it was a very traumatic thing, and a, for for a lot of white Southerners, especially rejecting Confederate symbols and the flag is like spitting on your mother's grave. You know, it's like dishonoring your, your father or your grandfather, or your great grandfather. And um, Southerners have an enormous uh, regard for their ancestors and for their history and for their heritage. So one of the reasons, Peter, that I wanted to go, and, and I had, interestingly, I had a lot of people say, Ligon, yours was the first statement where I didn't feel like somebody was wagging at a, a finger in my face, but understood what I was wrestling with. And that's what I was trying to do. Actually, I was, I was trying to say, hey, I'm, I'm one of you. I understand what it's like to, to, to be in your shoes. But here's what Jesus calls us to love our neighbors. And in, in this case, that's going to mean self-denial. 
And, um, and I think that message got through to a lot of folks. I was trying to call people. We've got to be ultimately allegiant to Christ. You know, all of us have other allegiances. I mean, all of us, for instance, on this call appreciate the benefits uh, of freedom uh, and, and equality that are afforded to us in our positions because we live in this country and, and culture. But our ultimate allegiance is to Jesus Christ. And our deepest bond with one another is, uh, is, is in Jesus Christ. And so I wanted to call people to the deepest things that animate us in the Christian life. And in this case, deny yourself. I know that that, that sign may be very, very important to you as a symbol of your ancestors and of your heritage, but there's something more important for us. And, and that's denying ourselves and loving our neighbors. Dr. Duncan, uh, I too was really encouraged when I read the post and I thought to myself, you know, this seems to be such a deeply uh, Christian theological reason for th rethinking about the flag. And the fact that you've again highlighted in this particular podcast as well, that we have good Christian grounds, right? We have theological reasons to, to love our neighbor, to deny ourselves, to follow Jesus Christ, and to think about our neighbor as image bearers of God for us to love. So I think that highlighting that um, might ask you which worries against perhaps our Christian brothers and sisters who might still be concerned about social justice issues as if social justice issues could just come from non-Christian sources and non-Christian yeah. thinking. I wonder how might we think about uh, the issue of social justice, particularly from a biblical perspective. And again, even before the podcast, you mentioned that our reform tradition actually has a lot of deep resources to think about this and how perhaps the Southern tradition has some kind somehow deviated from that. Yeah, I, I've been struck as I've had to think through this. Um, let, me, let me tell a bad story about myself, Gray, and I think you'll appreciate this. You know, I, I, went, to, I went to the University of Edinburgh, where you studied, from St. Louis, Missouri, where I had done two uh, graduate degrees. But I grew up in the American South, very much in the Southern Presbyterian tradition, with a particular view of the spirituality of the church that just says the church doesn't get involved in these things. And when I got to Scotland Gray, I realized that is not the tradition of Scottish Presbyterianism at all. And of course, as you know, from reading Bob Inc. and Kuiper, that's not the tradition of Dutch Calvinism either, or continental Calvinism. That is a, that is a holy novel uh, kind of view of the way that the church interacts with the state. In, in Scotland, the concern was, was for the state to stay out of the church's business uh, not to muzzle the church to speak about issues of public morality. And so that was something that sort of woke me up to, to realize, wow, I think the tradition that I've been taught is not the mainstream reformed understanding of how church and state are supposed to uh, relate. And sort of going back to the homeland of Presbyterianism and to, to being around really conservative, Bible-believing uh, Presbyterians who had a very different view on those things was really good for me. But even so, when I came back to the United States, Gray, the first course that I was asked to teach by RTS was pastoral and social ethics. So here I am coming from Edinburgh, Scotland to Jackson, Mississippi to teach pastoral and social ethics. And it does not occur to me to address the issue of racism. Even though I had students graduating from RTS in the 1990s, and going to churches in the Deep South where those churches would not allow Black people to join the church. Mm. And it still did not occur to me 
to teach in pastoral social ethics about racism. What, what was going on with me? And, and I think that shows you how blinded I had, I had been by my own culture's assumptions and practices about how Christians are to speak into the public sphere and how the church is to address issues of public morality. And that, of course, is because in the 19th century, Amer- Southern uh, Presbyterians uh, came up with the idea that slavery was a political issue, not a, not a spiritual issue. And therefore, the church had no right to speak to the issue of slavery. And, and that attitude actually had a ripple effect in Southern Presbyterianism as to how they engaged with public issues. Now, they were inconsistent on it. So, for instance, many conservative Southern Presbyterians would have spoken about abortion. Well, okay, that's something that people vote about. That's a political issue. That's a public issue. It's not just a church issue. It's a, it's a culture, a community, a state issue. How, why can we talk about that? So there were, there were some inconsistencies in the way that we would address that, but it was still a huge blind spot uh, for me. And so I realized, wow, my tradition has a lot more to say, and it has a lot more to offer than I've ever understood. So you're absolutely right, Gray. We don't want to look, you know, we don't want to look to Marxist sources or to secular sources to help us figure out social justice. That will be an unmitigated disaster because here's the problem. Those secular sources are operating on the basis of materialism, which is untrue and which cannot provide an answer that will, that will help us in our culture. But there are, you look at the larger catechism and I realized, Gray, probably 10 years ago, the larger catechism had all the answers that we needed in order to address the issue of slavery, segregation, and injustice in our culture, and we didn't use it. It's all there in the larger catechism. And so uh, what, what I want our folks to do you know, is go back and, and, and read Bavink on ethics. Go back and read, Burkhoff has an entire volume on social ethics that, that, that I think most people that have read uh, Burkhoff's Systematic Theology have never read his writings on social responsibility and social ethics. And they're there. And, and he addresses all kinds of things, including the race issue in the United States in the early 20th century. And that's just good old standard reform theology. And I think that when we're speaking to the constituency that we're speaking to that is concerned about theological liberalism, good for them. They should be concerned about theological liberalism. They are concerned about Marxism. Good for them. They should be concerned about Marxism. But we also should be concerned about equal justice for our fellow citizens in the Commonwealth. We should be concerned about loving our neighbors as ourselves. And our Westminster Confession and our Reformed tradition has all the stuff we need to address it. We don't need to go anywhere in the secular culture. We've got better stuff than they have to offer in that area. And we as Reformed theologians need to be equipping our pastors and our church members to be good citizens in the public square with that biblical argumentation. My heart's singing, not just because of the theological content I'm hearing here, but also to all the positive references to Herman Bovink. And you're... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> You're exactly right. Um, and you know, it's amazing to me, and James Eggleton has just showed this recently in his, not only his biography, but his recent blog post, that when Bobbing came to the States, he actually said that racism was one of the huge 
the most major problems that he's seen uh, in the United States that the United States has to face. And I think it's so important to highlight that we have, as you were mentioning, independent Christian theological reasons to ground our working for justice, for equality, for those of us who are um, um, in the front lines, we shouldn't be concerned of speaking into these public issues. I said these are just political issues. And especially if we understand that spirituality and the political cannot be separated. There is a, a unity here that we have to see or, or the mandate towards justice is actually biblical rather than something that is non-Christian. That's right. Amen. Ligon, thank you so much for this. I, we'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on further reading. If anyone listening to this wants to delve a little bit more deeply into some of the issues that you've brought up, particularly the, the theological doctrines informing your thinking on all of this, um, you know, the issue of race, the issue of reconciliation in the United States, any thoughts in terms of book recommendations that we can uh, supply to our audience? If you go to LiganDuncan.com, uh, I have on my site a link to the Mississippi Valley Presbytery report on uh, the gospel and race. Mm -hmm. And uh, it has a great bibliography for somebody who wants to kind of get into to this. But what I love about it is the public statement is rooted in the Bible, the confession, and the catechisms. So it, it will show you from the scripture, but also from the confession and the catechisms, the theological categories that we need to bring to bear. And by the way, one that I haven't mentioned, for instance, is for Christians, when you're talking about black and, and red and yellow and white and, and purple and whatever other kind of uh, people in the world there are. And, and by the way, in Mississippi, one, one, you know, I haven't mentioned Native Americans. They were here, they were here before any of us. Uh, we're here in Mississippi. And by the way, they were the first Presbyterians in the state because the mm -hmm. Presbyterians from New York and Pennsylvania came down the Natchez Trace down into the southwest corner of Mississippi and first evangelized the Indians. So there were, there were Indian Presbyterians in the state before there were white Presbyterians in, wow. in the state. And uh, I haven't mentioned them. I haven't mentioned our Hispanic um, uh, uh, citizens in the state. And there are tons of them in in, in Mississippi. But because the state is dominantly white and dominantly black, I've been talking in those categories. But what, what, um, what is so helpful is when you think about how many Christians there are here, the doctrine of the communion of saints is also another really important uh, doctrine to think about this. I often think that if, if the Southern church had simply paid attention to the doctrine of the communion of the saints during the civil rights movement. Our black Christian friends would have viewed us as allies to be trusted in the time of trial and tribulation mm -hmm. instead of indifferent to their suffering and complicit in the injustices that were being committed to them. And what a different world we would be in if we had just acted on the doctrine of the community of the saints. So that the, the document that Mississippi Valley Presbytery produced is rooted in the Bible, the confession and the catechisms. And then you've got a, a, a bibliography that they've, been, uh, that they've also uh, prepared that could get you into thinking about this. And it'll get you into some of these historical resources that we've been talking about on this uh, podcast. That's excellent. Thank you so much. And thank you, Ligon, for your leadership. I know I speak on behalf of all of our faculty and staff. We just so appreciate your leadership of the whole seminary during this time and you being a voice in these matters. 
and we pray for you and we pray for uh, your wife, Anne, and, and your kids. And we just trust uh, in the Lord's uh, blessing for you in, in the months and years ahead. Um, there, there's a lot to be done. And, uh, and, and we give thanks for you. And to everyone else, thank you for joining us uh, this week. We look forward to talking again with you next week. Um, until then, take care. We still haven't quite figured out the, the, the ending, how to land the plane on this thing. <laughs> We're good Presbyterians. We don't know how to end the sermon, and we can't just say, well, let's pray. So. <laughs> no. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord there you go. So. You just run out of time. That's what happens. Yeah. That's what happens. Thank you, Ligon. That was excellent. We really appreciate the time. That was inspiring. That was great. Great to be with you guys.